Well, good morning again. I was just uh, thinking as we were reading different passages of Scripture, uh, how we've kind of almost, or will almost, read from every major section of Scripture this morning. Uh, we uh, read from the writings um, in the Psalms. Uh, we, in Sunday school, if you're here, we studied Genesis, the law. Uh, we're going to read from the gospel, uh, gospels here, and we read from an epistle in Second Thessalonians. So we just need the prophets, right? So if you stay after, we'll do, I'll do a sermon on Daniel or something. No. Uh, um, but it's just great. I mean, uh, I think the Lord is most pleased when his word is read. Right? This, is the, this is the part that is totally accurate in the, in the uh, service. Uh, I may say something that's off. You need to be Bereans and check me. Uh, but when we read the scriptures, it is totally accurate. It is perfect. It is totally sufficient. So just great to read the scriptures from so many places. And um, of course, we are in Luke chapter 6, so you can turn there. And we are doing a summer series on the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain as uh, Luke describes it. And we are going to finish that this morning, unless the rapture happens, and then that would be even greater. <laughs> but uh, we're going we're gonna to plow ahead and finish uh, verses 46 to 49. And uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll be in chapter 7, kind of a changing gears in uh, Luke's gospel as we finish this glorious sermon that we have been studying. And now we come to the conclusion of it, and it's, a great, it's one of the greatest sermons ever preached, and so it's one of the greatest conclusions. It's a very familiar illustration that Jesus uses, and yet so pivotal that we understand this, that we grasp this uh, for ourselves, and of course, as we interact with others and bring the word to them as well. So let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 6 and read verses 46 to 49. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the living God. In John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, he describes a number of different characters, and they're really easy to understand what characterizes them by their names. I mean, Christian is named Christian, right? Well, obviously. And then uh, you have faithful, you have uh, many of these different characters that Bunyan is teaching spiritual lessons about. And of course, the story is mainly about Christian who lives in the city of destruction and he, uh, God begins to work on his heart and he has this massive burden, this weight on his back that he's carrying and he begins to hear the gospel and he begins to journey on towards the celestial city. And eventually he uh, 
comes to believe the gospel, his burden is taken away, and he uh, continues to journey on, and he has various trials along the way, and they meet different people and, and different temptations. They go to a place, a city called Vanity Fair. They are trapped in a castle called Doubting Castle, and giant despair is this giant who's trying to discourage them and even get them to take their own lives. And there's all these different stories, and uh, that Bunyan uh, just so beautifully uh, ties in with scripture and teaches us great spiritual lessons. It is a great book if you haven't read it. Uh, It is timeless. I think Spurgeon said he read it over a hundred times in his life. I mean, it was just one of his favorites. He gave it to his uh, to-be bride as like like an early date kind of gift. And he was like, here, read this, you know, and she liked it. So he's like, I'll marry you, you know. Uh, But um, in this book, he describes uh, one character who's a fascinating character, So Christian and faithful have been journeying on and they've been having great conversation, encouraging, edifying conversation about the Lord. And then they meet a figure named Talkative. Talkative. And you think, what is this guy known for? (laughs) Yeah. So here's how how Bunyan describes him at first. He describes him as being more attractive from a distance than he is up close. More attractive from a distance than he is up close. And this actually becomes apparent as they interact. Talkative wants to talk about spiritual things, and he talks very well about spiritual things. Here's what he says. For to talk of such things is most profitable, for by so doing a man may get knowledge of many things, as of the vanity of earthly things, the benefit of things above. Thus in general, but more particularly, by this a man may learn the necessity of the new birth the insufficiency of our works, the need of Christ's righteousness, etc. Besides, by this a man may learn what it is to repent, to believe, to pray, to suffer, or the like. By this also a man may learn what are the great promises and consolations of the gospel to his own comfort. Farther, by this a man may learn to refute false opinions, to vindicate the truth, and also to instruct the ignorant. Now, this is all what Faithful says. He's like, hey, let's talk about spiritual things. And Faithful is like, dude, this guy can talk. I mean, yeah. I mean, he is great. He's very impressed. And so he's just talking to Christian. He's like, wow, this guy. And Christian is, is not as impressed as Faithful is. Christian recognizes Talkative from the city of destruction. And Christian says this to Faithful. Or Bunyan comments this way. He says, at this, Christian modestly smiled and said, This man with whom you are so taken will beguile with this tongue of his 20 of them that know him not. So he'll deceive 20 people who don't know know him. And so you're like, whoa, what a sharp comment that Christian makes about him. Faithful says, do you know him then? Christian says, know him, yes, better than he knows himself. Faithful says, pray, what is he? Christian says, his name is talkative. He dwelleth in our town. I wonder that you should be a stranger to him. Only I consider that our town is large. Faithful then says, whose son is he? And whereabout doth he dwell? Christian says, he is the son of one Saywell. He dwelt in Prating Row. And he is known to all that are acquainted with him by the name of talkative of Prating Row. And notwithstanding his fine tongue, he is but a sorry fellow. Faithful says, well, he seems to be a very pretty man. 
And he doesn't mean his like physical appearance, but he, it's like Bunyan's way of saying he just seems like he's really like good looking spiritually. I mean, he talks a, a great game. And Christian uh, then says that, that is to them that have not a thorough acquaintance with him, for he is best abroad. Near home, he is ugly enough. There's that idea of far away, he seems good, but you get closer, those at home who know him, he's not so much. I have been in his family and have observed him both at home and abroad, and I know what I say of him is the truth. His house is as empty of religion as the white of an egg is of savor. I guess, you know, <laughs> the white of an egg of savor. There is there neither prayer nor sign of repentance for sin. Yea, the brute in his kind serves God far better than he. Faithful then decides to engage talkative in some conversation. And they begin to talk. And, um, and he begins to probe uh, the questions about what it really means to have a heart religion, to really know God by experience. And so talkative starts to rattle off things like rapid fire. And Faithful stops him. He said, well, let's just deal one at a time. And he begins to talk through one at a time. And you can tell that, that talkative has a great knowledge of things, but he doesn't have the experience of them. And so when Faithful begins to press him on that, that, for instance, he'll say things like, well, it's to, it's to decry against sin. And Faithful challenges him on that. And he says, well, yes, it's one thing to speak out against sin that you see in the world, but it is far more a sign of grace that you see sin in your own heart, that you decry your own sin. And the idea is like, it's easy to like say, man, our culture is terrible. It's, it's doing bad. But then to see it in your own heart, that's the main issue. And then, and he goes on to describe other things as well. And, uh, and, and at every point, uh, faithful just presses him that he doesn't quite get it himself. And then talkative gets defensive, he gets defensive at this point uh, at how, Christ, how faithful is, um, is really challenging him and his profession of spirituality. Eventually, talkative leaves their company because he cannot handle the strong challenge to his faith brought by faithful. And then Christian says this after he, uh, talkative leaves. He says, you did well to talk so plainly to him as you did. There is but little of this faithful dealing with men nowadays. And that makes religion to stink so in the nostrils of many as it doth. For they are these talkative fools whose religion is only in word and who are debauched and vain in their conversation that being so much admitted into the fellowship of the godly do puzzle the world, blemish Christianity, and grieve the sincere. I wish that all men would deal with such as you have done. Then should they either be made more comfortable to religion or the company of saints would be too hot for them. And then Faithful says in response, how talkative at first lifts up his plumes, like smoke goes up, how bravely doth he speak, how he presumes to drive down all before him. But so soon as Faithful talks of heart work, like the moon that's past the full, into the wane he goes, and so will all but he that heart work know. And his point is, once you begin to really press this man, this kind of person about real heart work, about real heart religion, experiential religion, that you really do not just know about God, but you really know God, you press him at that level, and he doesn't want to talk anymore. He doesn't want to talk. He's like, he's like the moon after being full, just wanes. 
and just passes away. And that's what he does. He leaves. They press him on the true spirituality of personal relationship with God, and he leaves. This is the very issue of our passage this morning. It is the warning against the danger of being like talkative, of being able to talk a, a good game of the, the Bible. You, I know the Bible. Yeah, let's talk about it. And you can, you can quote people. You can quote theologians. You can quote the Bible. You know theology, but you don't know the God of whom you're speaking. Having the ability to converse of religion, but having no experience of it in the heart and life. That was talkative's problem. And that's the issue Jesus is addressing as he concludes his sermon. We've been studying this great sermon, and Jesus is now going to land the plane. He's, he's concluding the sermon. He's calling for a response. He calls for obedience to what he has said. He begins, really, where he ends. We pointed out that as he set up these two categories of people in humanity, the blessed and those who have God's woe, God's judgment, it was like Psalm 1. You have two kinds of people in the world. And really, he ends the sermon kind of like Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest you be angry. You need to submit to him. You need to follow him. And that's what we're going to see. Just by way of review, we saw in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, the context of the kingdom sermon, those who were coming to hear him, and then the comfort of kingdom citizens in verses 20 to 26. They are those who are blessed and not receiving the judgment of God. And then the charity or the love of kingdom citizens in verses 27 to 36. Then the character of kingdom citizens in verses 37 to 45. We began to see their fruit, the good fruit that they bear because they're a good tree, they've been regenerated. And then finally we see the choice of kingdom citizens. The choice of kingdom citizens in verses 46 to 49. The parallel text to this is in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and... Of course, you know, Matthew has his own purposes in writing, uh, and, and we, we already pointed out there's a condensed version in Luke of the sermon. But in Matthew 7, verse, let me read the section um, where, where Matthew has this. In Matthew 7, 21, you'll see how similar they are. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast de out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he describes the, the same illustration of the building on the rock that we'll see in our passage. As Jesus concludes his sermon, we're gonna see three thought-provoking considerations for those who have heard the words of Jesus. Three thought-provoking considerations for those who have heard the words of Jesus because everyone here has heard the sermon. Uh, everyone who uh, Jesus is speaking to has heard his words and now he calls them to consider these things in light of the message they've heard. We're gonna see the striking rebuke in verse 46, the saving response in verses 47 and 48, and the sad ruin in verse 49. Let's look first at this striking rebuke in verse 46. Look there, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What's the point of this verse? What is he saying? It is this. It is the perplexity of a passionate profession apart from persistent pursuit. Let me say that again. It is the perplexity 
of a passionate profession apart from a persistent pursuit. Let's unpack that. There is a claim here of commitment to Christ without conformity to Christ. A claim of commitment to Christ without conformity to Christ. Notice how Lord, Lord is emphatic, right? He could have just said one time, Lord. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? But he says it twice. He's being emphatic. He's emphasizing this. You say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, so Jesus is saying this uh, and bringing up the situation, but he's He's putting it in the mouth of those who are claiming to know him. So here's a person who comes to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, right? They are being emphatic. And so Jesus' point is an emotional and emphatic profession of faith is not enough. It's not enough to just emphatically say and emotionally say, Lord, Lord, and yet not have true, you, you could potentially not have true saving faith and yet say that. Lord here refers to Jesus as the ultimate authority. And especially in Matthew, it is a claim to deity. And it is throughout the New Testament. Of course, we're familiar with this statement in Paul in Romans chapter 10. Uh, very uh, focused on the gospel response. And in uh, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you actually see where Paul is quoting from, he's quoting from Joel 2. And, and in Joel 2, it, the Lord is Yahweh. It is God. And so Paul is making a clear connection here to Jesus being uh, the authority of authorities, God of very God. Remember when Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of the Father? He's making an allusion there to Isaiah 45, 23. And again, in Isaiah 45, Lord is referring to Yahweh. It's referring to God. And so throughout the New Testament, this is connecting it to the, the lordship, the, the, the deity even of Christ, and therefore his authority. Because if he is truly God, he is the ultimate authority. If God is your, if God is the creator, he made you, and therefore he has all rights over you. He is the master. Now, he says, you say to me in verse 46, back to Luke, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, what is, what is the content of what Jesus is telling them? In context, it's the sermon that he just preached, right? It's the sermon on the mount. Now, it's not completely limited to that, but that's the immediate context. It's really anything Jesus says, but as later in the Great Commission will say, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But here in context, it's the sermon that they just heard. If you compare this with Matthew seven twenty one, and what Jesus says there in the sermon, you see that Jesus' teaching in the sermon on the mount is equivalent to the Father's moral will. He says... In Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in Matthew, it's the will of my Father. In Luke, it is my words. So, so Jesus' words are the will of the Father. Once again, highlighting his authority. 
Now, the word that's really important in verse 46 is the word do. It's actually a really simple word. Do. Practice, right? To do it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You don't do it. Obedience is the necessary expression of true faith. And just hear that rightly. Obedience is the necessary expression of true faith. It is the expression, right? We're not saying obey the law so that you're saved. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's already said, if you bear good fruit, it is evidence that you have a good tree. And how do you get a good tree? Because God made you alive. He did the work. And so the idea here is, here's the evidence that someone really does know me as Lord. They do what I say. They, their heart has been changed. And this isn't like exclusively here. Go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 21. Or sorry, verse 19. Here's the context. Luke eight nineteen. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. <laughs> there it is. There's the word do. They hear the word of God and they do it. This is like a callback to the sermon. And then chapter 11 of Luke. Chapter 11, verse 28. 11:28. Well, sorry, once again, we gotta, that's where we're after, but verse 27, you've got to hear it in context. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Same thing. Same thing. Notice blessed, right? That takes you back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed, 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 blessed. Those who are in the state of God's favor. Here's an evidence. They're practicing keeping the word. In John, let's just skip out of Luke for a second. John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. So if you continue in my word, persevering, continue, that's the evidence that you truly are a disciple. It's not saying how you become a disciple. It is saying the evidence that you are a disciple because you, you hold fast to Christ. Keep following him. A couple more. Let me just, just, you know, like hammer the nail in and then grab a thing and pull the nail in on the other side. I'm just gonna like really get this in your minds, okay? <laughs> Many angles. Uh, 1 John 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we've come to know Christ if you keep his commandments. Chapter five, verse three of 1 John. Chapter five, verse three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. James, the half-brother of Jesus, got this. And he wrote about this as well. James is a very early um, letter in the New Testament that's written. And... Um, uh, James knew about his brother, his half-brother's sermon, and there is like so much connection in James to the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, James loved this sermon, <laughs> and, and and you see that come out in the sermon in uh, James's teaching. Uh, in James two, 
uh, starting in verse 14, there's this famous section, but listen to it now in, with, with the Sermon on the Mount in your mind. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then listen to the next phrase. This is really important to understand what James is saying. He says, can that faith save him? So here's a kind of faith, right? It is a faith. Put it in quotes, right? Here's someone who says, I- I've got faith. It's talkative, right? Here's talkative saying, oh, I've got faith. And he says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, here's the objection, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The point is, here's the confirmation. Here is the way that you know someone has real, genuine, saving faith. It bears itself out in fruit, in works, in obedience. I mean, that, that new regenerate heart begins to germinate Immediately. Now, there's different levels, right? 30, 60, 100 fold, but there's a, is, there's a change. There's a change that takes place. And that's what James is saying. That's what Jesus is saying here. James is talking about a kind of faith that doesn't work. This person is like talkative. J.C. Ryle writes this Let it be a fixed principle in our religion that obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith. And that the talk of the lips is worse than useless if it is not accompanied by sanctification of the life. The man in whose heart the Holy Ghost really dwells will never be content to sit still and do nothing to show his love to Christ. Ezekiel speaks in a similar way. Ezekiel 33, or God through Ezekiel Ezekiel 33, remember Ezekiel was called to be a watchman in chapter three, chapter 33, which serve as good break break points in the book, but he's called to be a watchman and to call out people and uh, so that their blood is not on his head, warning them. And in chapter 33, verse 31, listen to how this is spoken. Come, hear what the word is that comes from Yahweh. Verse 31, and they came to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say but they will not do it. That sounds familiar. (laughs) They will not do it. By the way, do you know what title Ezekiel is called? Son of man. You know what Jesus' like favorite title is? Son of man. And what gospel especially focuses on that? Luke, you know, right? So, okay. So they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it.
do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. When judgment comes, they're going to know it, that a prophet was there. But they love to hear you. They love the voice. They love the oratory. And they love to talk, but they don't want to do. They don't want to do. If Jesus is Lord, then you must submit everything to him. He is Lord. And here's the thing. It takes the Holy Spirit to bring you to that place, to bring you to the place where you confess Jesus as Lord. This is where Paul, uh, Paul makes this really clear in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, I mean, so you're like, well, I can say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, right? But he doesn't mean saying, vocalizing the, the words audibly. He means that this is your confession. This is your embrace. Jesus is Lord. You can only say that apart, uh, um, by the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. Apart from that, you would never have this transformed heart. And so therefore, when God does this supernatural work of transformation, it is going to evidence in an incredible yield of fruit. You cannot stay the same. This is like, you know, uh, no one is expecting a non-Christian to bear a bunch of fruit. Uh, It's like God gives us the Iron Man suit. And it's like, all right, now you can fly and you can do all these things. I mean, the 30, 60, 100 fold is insane amount of yield. I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, you know, it's like someone just started flying. You know, it's like, this is incredible. But that is the radical nature of the new covenant. It's like getting the Iron Man suit. And all of a sudden, from the heart now, you can obey and you can do these things that were not possible for it. So to say that you could be a part of the new covenant and have this incredible change and yet not have evidence of that change is totally... Uh, backwards. It, it doesn't work. If you have a transformed heart, and like referenced last week, a fig and grape heart that matches the fig and grape of the kingdom, then you want to obey Christ. And here's the result. J.C. Ryle says, whenever Christ, wherever Christ is best known and obeyed, there will always be found most real joy and peace. And so this is the issue that Jesus is bringing to them. This, this rebuke. Striking rebuke. Now, when you challenge someone this way and they don't know the Lord, well, yet they claim to, they may try to put the walls up like Talkative did. And they may do it in a lot of ways. Can't be exhaustive here, but maybe they want to just go to the past and tell you all the experiences they've had or the things they've done for the Lord in the past. They don't want to talk about right now, though. The issue is, though, you have to take your pulse, right? Take your pulse. Where, where are you? Are you alive right now? They want to point just to past experience, not present endurance. The issue Jesus is pressing here is submission. Submission. One who hears but does not submit. Once again, two kinds of people, Psalm 1, and a lack of submission to the sovereign, Psalm 2. This is how the Psalter begins. And it, Psalm 2 ends, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Why? Because Psalm 2 is all about Jesus is the king. He's the Davidic king who will rule on the earth. And so we must be right with him. And this is what, this is what Luke is talking about, or Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of God. If you're going to enter the future earthly kingdom of God where Jesus reigns on the earth, you have to be rightly related to the king. And the evidence that you're rightly related to the king is that you obey the king. 
Now, certainly this is directed at those who talk a big game but don't have fruit, but it leads us as believers even to ask, okay, Lord, search my heart. Are there areas where I am professing loudly my allegiance to you, but I'm not doing what you say? Uh, I'm holding back. I'm unwilling to submit to you in some way. It's a great prayer to pray. And then to bring those things before the Lord, asking the Lord for help to obey where he wants you to obey. One writer said this, can you be considered a loyal citizen of the king in his kingdom and yet not obey his commands? No, that doesn't work in any other context. It doesn't work here. And Jesus is pointing out this to those who are following him. Not doing the will of Jesus, being a hearer only, but not a doer of the word, as James would say. So this is the striking rebuke that he gives, verse 46. Secondly, we hear the saving response of true disciples in verses 47 to 48. The saving response of true disciples. Look there. And here's the closing illustration, really, of his sermon. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. There's a, notice here, there's a threefold character of this person's response. Remember, this is the saving response. Threefold response, verse 47 comes to me, hears my words, does them. Comes to me, hears my words, does them. Now this idea of hearing Jesus is actually within the context of the sermon. In in verse 18, when we saw the context of the sermon, in 6.18 it says, these people from all over the place who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Many came to hear him. And then verse 27, but I say to you who hear... So there's this dynamic at play in Jesus' sermon. There's all these people who are coming to hear Jesus on one level. They want to hear what he says. And then there's another level where Jesus says, to you who hear. Well, they're all hearing him. So he's talking about a, a different kind of hearing. He's talking, as we already pointed out when we studied this, this is the, those who really embrace him. They embrace his teaching. They have ears to hear, eyes to see. That's like a phrase picked up later. And so that's what he's saying. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words in that second sense, and they do them, here's what they are like. Here's what they're like. Now, of course, followers of Christ don't perfectly obey him. And in Matthew's account, he'll actually teach his disciples to pray, and he'll teach them to pray, Father, forgive us for our trespasses. So he's calling them to, as a disciple, obey him in seeking forgiveness when they do sin. So, So, Obeying his commands is part of, one of the commands you need to obey is to acknowledge and confess your sins when you sin, right? So we're not saying sinless perfection here, but there's this fruit that begins to take place. The key difference he's pointing out in verse 47, once again, is doing Jesus' word and not just hearing it. And that's the same point he made in verse 46. Now he illustrates it. What provides stability in the midst of the storm of coming judgment? Verse 48. And Luke here gives a little bit more detail, focus on the foundation, the building of it. 
he uses some rare words here. Notice what he says, a man building a house who he dug deep, he laid the foundation on the rock. There are really two questions we must answer in this illustration. The first is, what is the foundation? What is the foundation that he's talking about here? And it's interesting. <laughs> there are really two ways that people take this. One is to say it is the words of Jesus. And so he's saying, you know, the foundation is obeying the words of Jesus, keeping the words of Jesus. The other is to say it's Jesus himself, right, as the foundation. And I'm like thinking through this in my study. I'm like, okay, which one is it here? I'm looking at passages, making the case, and I'm like, I'm like, man, what is this? What word? Is it, the, is it the words of Jesus or is it Jesus himself? The words of Jesus? It's like, and I, and I don't like to do this a lot, you know, because it sounds like it's cheating, but it's like, why do we have to make a choice? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like, uh, isn't Jesus the word of God who gives the word of God, right? John makes this point, right? We have the incarnate word, w, capital W, and the inscripturated word, little w, right? Jesus gives his word. So I don't think we're like too far off regardless of where you land on that. You have the son as the word and the scripture as the word. The word is the extension of God. And so I think you could even just put them together and say the way you build on Christ the foundation is by obeying his word to trust in him as the foundation, right? And there's just so many texts as well that connect this idea of God being a rock. I mean, this imagery, I just wish we could spend our time, you know, just like a pig in the mud, you know, like, looking at these texts and seeing these connections. They're pretty glorious. Uh, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is referred to as the rock. And then Christ is referred to as the rock. I'm just gonna give you a little sampling here. But First uh, Peter, in our study there, you remember this text. That's how familiar this sounds to what we're studying in First Peter 2, verse 5. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So even notice how Peter is interweaving these concepts together of you have Christ as the cornerstone, but then they're disobeying the word, the little word, the, the word spoken. They're not believing. They're not, they're disobeying. They're, they're not, they don't have the obedience of faith, believing the uh, believing the call to respond and trust in Christ. So they're, they're closely tied together. Uh, two other places, you have these, a lot of like foundation passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, and here he's talking more about for believers and their rewards, but still pertinent to our conversation about foundations. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Here's the ultimate foundation, Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verse 20 Ephesians 2, verse 20, 
tells us about how the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So once again, we actually see these two ideas start to meld together where you have Christ as the cornerstone and then the apostles and prophets. And what is that getting at? How are, the, how are the apostles and prophets a foundation of the church? Their words, their teaching, right? We have the inscripturated word spoken by the apostles and prophets that serves as the foundation for the church. And so once again, you have Christ the cornerstone, the capital W word, and then you have the inscripturated word by the apostles and prophets, little w word. They're just so tightly connected here. It's hard to make a decision. <laughs> I don't think you have to necessarily. It, because your response to the written word is your response to the incarnate word. It's just simple as that. You know, like some uh, liberal theologians would often, often talk about how they want to uh, discover who the real Christ of history was, uh, or the Jesus of history, rather. And, um, and they, they're like trying to look outside of the Bible in some way to find out who that is. And you're like, you don't know who Jesus is apart from the Bible. <laughs> like, you need the Bible to know who Jesus is. So you need the word to know the word. Now, there's no conflict or choice to be made. The words are authoritative because the word is authoritative. And so this is, again, a powerful statement of Jesus' divinity, of his authority. He speaks the very words of God. To reject him is to reject God. And so foundation is, yes, the spoken words of Jesus, but it is also Jesus himself. The second... What is the nature of the storm? What is the nature of the storm? Or not really a storm, really, but a storm that leads to a stream coming and, and breaking against this house. It's actually just a normal word for the river. And I like this word because it's like, uh, it's the word where we get our word Potomac River from. Like they named the Potomac River from this word that in Greek is like the word for river, general word. So that's cool. I'm from Virginia. And uh, so um, it's just a kind of a general word. But the idea is like a storm comes and it leads to this, this rising water levels in this river and it makes contact with a structure and it has one effect on one structure and another effect on another structure. And it's all dependent on the foundations. Some will say, well, this is the final judgment. Or some say this is just the trials of life that reveal it. Um, I think it's better to take this as the final judgment. Matthew's really seems to be explicit on that point. Um, I think even though, uh, even though we, that, that same point to, is, the, is the case with Luke. Um, and there, there's a really close parallel uh, to, to both Matthew and Luke in Ezekiel 13. I know you've been doing your devotions there. Um, actually have. I mean, I've been reading the Ezekiel. It's really fun. Um, Ezekiel's a crazy guy, uh, but all for a purpose. Um, Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel 13, verse 10 to 16. It says, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, 
And there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord Yahweh. And so there's this picture of this coming judgment. Of course, uh, there is this interplay between prophecy of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the decimation of that, but then also Ezekiel's looking forward at times in his book to eschatological judgment, the end times judgment that God will bring. And so I think you could make, though, a case from the greater to the lesser, right? If this is ultimate judgment, which reveals the character of someone I mean, how much more are trials in life going to reveal the character beforehand, right? Like, when you see a believer go through a significant trial, uh, of course, you know, we show much grace because we all sin and we, we don't have the response exactly the way we want, but, but overall, you see, there's this continued trust in the Lord. There's this continued uh, struggle, yes, but clinging to Christ and, and saying, I'm not going to deny Christ in this. I don't know what he's doing, but I know that he's right even though I don't know how, I know that he's right. And you trust, you continue to trust. And that reveals the character of your faith. That's what 1 Peter 1 says, the tested genuineness of your faith. But this ultimate day will truly reveal where the foundations were, or if there was a foundation. Those who have this saving response, they've built upon Christ, they've looked to him in confidence, for their standing with God will endure. John chapter five, verse 24. Listen to these verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What a great statement. Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, verse one. We, we know, we love this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First John chapter four, verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Confidence in the day of judgment. What is the foundation underneath you? It is Christ, dear Christian. Yeah, it is Christ. It is your trust in his word and therefore you will stand on the day of judgment. You say, God's wrath is coming, but I'm spared from that because the foundation is solid. It holds. It's a rock. And of course, the, the flip side of this is this final point, the sad ruin, the sad ruin. Verse 49, look there. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation and the stream broke against it. Immediately, it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Notice the point of difference here. This person hears, but they do not do the works. The, uh, they do not uh, listen to the um, works, words of Christ and follow in obedience. The point is, while the houses may appear similar, and this is, I think, the idea in, in Ezekiel, this whitewash, you're like making it look good, uh, papering over it, and um, 
It's like if you don't have any foundation and then like a wall starts to like crack, you know, and you're trying to sell your house, you're like, oh, what do we do? All right, put some spackle on that and they'll repaint it and then we'll take pictures, you know, so you can't tell. Uh, you can't, and, and that can happen, right? There's foundation issues. How do you know? Well, sometimes you don't know until it's too late. They appear similar now, but the river reveals the true foundation, A life may look good on the outside, like the lives of others, but if there's no foundation, it falls. (laughs) Notice how he says, it falls immediately. It's not like multiple storms, and then it falls. It's like the river hits, and boom, this thing drops. I I think about, it's like a movie set in Hollywood, right? Think of an old Western, and if you were to go on those sets, you walk down, it's like the same one. I think they use the same one for every movie. It's like, you walk down the street, they just change the signs, and the saloon, and all this stuff, and so you walk down the street, and you're looking around, you're like, man, this looks real, and when you see it in a movie, you're like, yeah, this is like a, what town did they film this in? And then if you were to just like zoom out with a drone, you would see like, it's just a wall, and then a bunch of two-by-fours holding it up, and no foundation. You walk to the other side, and it's just nothing, nothing there, and that's this person's house. It's like, it looks like it. You could be deceived. It's eh, kind of, it's like faithful talking to talkative. At first glance, from afar, he looks pretty good. But then you get closer and you examine and you go, wait a minute. When I open this door and I go out, there's nothing here. <laughs> this is a whole big field. And that's this idea. If a storm came and, and came through that area, all those walls knocked down. It's difficult to perceive the foundation ahead of the day of judgment at times. Same storm and river impact both houses. But notice the contrast. That's really important. The idea is not someone has a good foundation and a bad foundation. The idea is someone has a foundation and someone has no foundation. That, that's, look at what he says. But the one who hears and does not do, uh, do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Just right there. Just, just do it. Just, we're going to get this house up so much faster. <laughs> you know, just don't even start with the foundation. If you don't have Christ and his word as your foundation, you don't even have a foundation. It's like you're just floating in midair. If, you're, if Christ is not your confidence on the day of judgment... You should not have any confidence whatsoever. Notice the devastation. He says, it fell immediately and the ruin of that house was great. The ruin of that house was great. So will it be for everyone whose foundation is not upon Christ. They're, they're looking to some other foundation, other vague foundation that is not Christ. It is, an, it is no foundation. And so what is the foundation you are building upon? And as Christ concludes the sermon, it should be evident through his teaching that Christ is so willing to receive those who are his enemies, <laughs> to forgive them of their sins as they call out to him in faith and trust. He will not have to say, depart from me, I never knew you, because the father says to the son in Psalm 22, Well, the son says to the father, why have you forsaken me? There's this forsakenness, this curse of the son so that we don't have to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. 
I heard someone say, Christ is much more willing to receive sinners than sinners are to receive him. Christ is far more willing to receive sinners than sinners are to receive him. And he overcomes that obstinance to bring us to him, thankfully. One other place I want to take us to as we, as we close. I thought about this story in Matthew 21. I know it's outside of Luke, but I think it makes the point here really, really well. A parable Jesus tells in Matthew 21, verse 28 to 32. Matthew 21, 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Notice vine language, kingdom of God language. I mean, this is all tied together. It's all connected to the Sermon on the Mount. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. What is change your minds? That's repentance, right? And believe. You didn't repent and believe. And so here are two people, right? There's the one who said, I'll go, I'll do it. I'll obey your word. Lord, Lord. And they didn't do it. And then here's another one who says, ah, forget that. Forget Christ, whatever. I've got my own confidence. I'm fine. I'll be good. And then they go, how foolish. How foolish I've been. I have no hope apart from Christ. Lord, forgive me for ever thinking that. Forgive me for thinking that blasphemous thought that I could stand before you apart from with anything else other than the foundation of Christ and his perfect life, his perfect righteousness and his substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection. How could I ever think that I could stand before you without that? Lord, I repent. I trust in that and that alone. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom of God. Not those who say, I believe, I believe, and yet they never truly have that heart religion. They are merely talkative. What is your confidence in the face of the river of God's wrath? It cannot be vague and general. It must be a specific confidence, one that is upon Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. Heidelberg 1, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of grace in our hearts. 
by which we say Jesus is Lord. When we once spurned him and his authority, we now love his authority. We grieve when we don't obey you and live according to your word. And Lord, if there are those here who do not have any foundation, make that evident to them so that they might be like that son who at first seemed to reject, but then came to receive and rest upon the rock. May that be our confidence. May that be our hope and stay. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his perfect life, his death and resurrection. He is our hope. He is our confidence. Give us joy as we live in this reality, the privilege of being your children, being forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond in worship to the Lord in song. Come ye sinners, poor and needy.